from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Sitting in today for Tony is our own Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships for Family Research Council. Good Friday afternoon to you. I'm Sarah Perry, your host on this, the 19th of June, 2020. Today's edition of Washington Watch, this has been a whirlwind week, and for adherence to textualist interpretations of the law, a rather disappointing one. In a series of decisions and refusals to decide, the U.S. Supreme Court proved its willingness to act as legislature and not judicial body beginning on Monday and setting up further challenges to religious liberty across the country. But in a bright spot, the Department of Justice announced just today that it has filed a statement of interest defending the constitutionality of Idaho's Fairness in Women's Sports Act. Travis Weber, FRC's VP of Policy and Government Affairs, joins me to discuss the DOJ announcement, wrap up the week at the High Court, and look ahead to the upcoming decision in June Medical Services v. Russo, a case that places the hotly contested issue of abortion in the Supreme Court's sightline. In my second block, since the tragic killing of George Floyd, the last few weeks have been tumultuous and deeply painful in the life of our country, and the national conversation has intensified around the issues of racism and justice. I'll be joined by Adam Greenway, president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, who will discuss the Juneteenth holiday and help us understand the Christian approach to issues of race. At the bottom of the hour, I'll have Chad Connolly, founder and president of Faith Wins. He'll discuss the growing threat the political left poses to churches and how Christians can engage in the public arena. And in my last block, it's the beginning of Father's Day weekend, and there has never been a more urgent need for godly men and fathers than the age in which we live. Dr. Jesse Gill, licensed psychologist and the clinic director for Psychological Health Affiliates in Hershey, Pennsylvania, will talk about his new publication for us, Leadership and Love, A Tale of Two Fathers. A reminder, our website for today's podcast, TonyPerkins.com. Follow us on Twitter at FRCDC, me at Sarah P. Perry, or Tony at T. Perkins. And for those of you who don't have the most updated version of the Stand Firm app, make sure that you go into your Apple or Google app stores. Make sure you've downloaded the most up-to-date version. We've rebuilt it. And you can take Washington Watch with you and listen wherever you go. Well, the Supreme Court continued in the chaotic theme that seems to mark much of 2020 to date, with a spate of recent decisions this week that had conservatives and liberals alike flabbergasted. But the Department of Justice reestablished its commitment to equal protection with a recent statement of interest defending the constitutionality of Idaho's Fairness and Women's Sports Act. And that's welcome relief for those of us who are looking next to Title IX's implications this week. Here to discuss the week's legal developments and help me future cast on issues like abortion and the high court is FRC's Vice President of Policy and Government Affairs, Travis Weber. Travis, welcome. Thank you very much. So this has been rather a strange week, and I think for those of us who follow the court's decisions and who understood how much was on the line for issues of particular relevance to social conservatives, they punted on some issues and on others decided in a way, I think, that had many of us with our jaws hanging open. 
I want to start, first of all, with the recognition that some decisions were effectively a no decision, with justices saying, listen, it's not our call on these. Those were two major decisions, one about gerrymandering and one about adding a question to the 2020 census asking whether a respondent is a U.S. citizen. So in both cases, the high court basically decided to punt. And then in no fewer than 10 cases, SCOTUS decided that it was going to turn away a host of challenges to state laws on firearms, declining to take up a very contentious matter of gun rights. So here they've sidestepped in April. They have taken three of the big hot-button issues. They have essentially remanded them back down to the state level. But in one of the biggest decisions, if not the biggest decision, and one for which we here at Family Research Council, I think are still continually reeling over, was the decision in the Bostock consolidated cases. So talk a little bit about what some of the surprises were in this case. Yeah, Sarah, this is a momentous case uh, for several reasons. Um, This case uh, held that uh, the sex non-discrimination provisions in Title VII, the federal employment law statute that's part of the 1964 Civil Rights Act prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sex, uh, you know, which has been with us decades, over 55 years, right. uh, and being interpreted to prohibit uh, sex discrimination, protect men and women from discrimination. This provision was interpreted by the court uh, on Monday to include the ideas of sexual orientation discrimination and gender identity discrimination. Now, that was a bad holding. It's a wrong holding under the law. Mm -hmm. Uh, Compounding the bad holding, though, the fact that it was written by Justice Neil Gorsuch, uh, who we were told was an originalist and a textualist when he was confirmed to the court, joined by Justice Chief Chief Justice Roberts to have six justices uh, ruling in this manner, which is a more activist, more of a policymaking, legislating manner, as Justice Alito pointed out in a strong dissent, uh, a good dissent, joined by Justice Thomas. Um, unfortunate result and doubly uh, disappointing because Justice Gorsuch wrote the opinion. Uh, mm-hmm. He claimed to be deciding it on textualist grounds, but if you read it and look at his reasoning, it's not convincing. Uh, no one could understand the ordinary meaning of the word sex, of, of sex discrimination at the time. The bill was enacted in 1964 to include gender identity or sexual orientation. It's just not plausible, as Justice Alito notes in dissent. So this is very problematic. It's problematic to have Justice Gorsuch write it. And this decision is problematic because of the religious liberty uh, consequences. It's going to unleash in uncertainty and litigation in the years to come. So speaking of religious liberty and those consequences, some legal pundits have basically argued the fact that our singular shining light in all of this is expansion of the ministerial exception. So basically, and and Gorsuch did give a nod to this. He did talk about the fact that they were not considering religious liberty implications in this particular decision. Do you think, particularly in cases, for example, like Our Lady of Guadalupe School, so here is a case that's coming out of California in which a Catholic school didn't renew the contracts of lay teachers because it declared them to be ministers whose employment is exempt from governmental protection. So it puts it squarely within the sight lines of a case like this. Do you think an expansion 
of a case like this where there are religious liberty protections, does that somehow save us from the cliff of Bostock's implications? Well, it doesn't save us because there's all sorts of unknowns that are still going to be decided and played out uh, over years, really. We're going to be facing years. You know, so it's true that Vostok didn't decide a religious liberty question. It decided the question of sex non-discrimination and what that includes. The One of the cases, the Harris Funeral Home case, did include a religious freedom claim, a religious freedom restoration act, or RIFRA mm-hmm. claim in the lower courts. That was not decided before the U.S. Supreme Court. That question is still outstanding. The question of whether RIFRA can stand up to a claim of, um, of non-discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity, which you would claim as a religious liberty violation in response to that for those seeking to protect their faith. Um, that question is not decided, so we're going to have to, to deal with that. The, the Guadalupe case you mentioned, we're going to get a decision soon. It's you know We're obviously looking forward to an expansive, more expansive reading of the ministerial exception in that case, which is positive. And, and you know if the court reasons well and comes down with the right result, we will praise the justices. I mean, remember, this is a bad decision. It's bad that Justice Gorsuch wrote it. But mm-hmm. he's decided well in other cases. This doesn't do away with the importance of the courts and, and Justice Gorsuch's record, but it certainly sends everyone reeling. It's casting everything into doubt. And we're going to have to wait and see what happens in the Guadalupe case and the June Medical versus Russo case, a state abortion-related case we're going to get a decision on in the coming weeks. Um, these are cases that people are really going to be looking at uh, for the Supreme Court to tell if we have real originalists and conservatives up there or we, we don't. So June Medical Services, let's bring that up. That's an important case. This is a case that required doctors or clinics to have admitting privileges to hospitals within 30 miles of the actual abortion clinic itself. Now, this seems to the ear to be very much like Whole Woman's Health versus Heller said. How is it different? And based on what we've just seen from the Supreme Court, which also included a loss for the Trump administration on DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals situation, the Dreamers, as it were. So there are two big losses. Where do you think this court, based on its composition, what it's just shown us, is going to come down on June Medical? Yes, I mean, we'll have to wait and see. Really hope for the best. We don't know. The, you know, I think I do think these cases involve slightly different considerations. And, you know, some are proper considerations, some are improper. I mean, the justices should not be looking at political considerations as they decide these cases. But yeah. uh, no doubt their pressure is coming to bear and these considerations are coming up. You can't read too much into some of the denials just because there are different factors that go into that. But 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 the you know this Bostic decision is troubling. The DACA decision had forces you know at work that did not lend itself to a, a conservative uh, result. And uh, we're going to see what, what happens to June Medical in Guadalupe. June Medical is different from Hellerstadt in, in some of the considerations uh, at play in terms of the way that the state um, went about enacting the law regulating uh, abortion facilities for the health and safety of women. So mm-hmm. I do think uh, it's very plausible that we can get a good result there. And Chief Justice Roberts was on the right side of the Hellerstadt case. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we really have to wait and see. But, but this should be a no-brainer. But, but you know, we'll, we'll have to see. I think a lot of people are watching this. A lot of people are very focused on the court right now. A lot of people who, who um, care about the court, care about the life issue and other social conservative issues, who just want originalist justice. They're not asking for special favors, but they want fair treatment at the court. They haven't been getting that in all these cases. And 
voters are really going to be looking at this as the president is refocused on the courts and the nominations process as we enter an election year. It's mm-hmm. very important. It's, very, it's on everyone's minds. So let me mention this very quickly. Just today, the Department of Justice has filed a statement of interest in the federal lawsuit brought by the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU, against the state of Idaho because Governor Brad Little, as we know, signed the Fairness in Women's Sports Act. It is the first state law of its kind to explicitly protect Title IX at the state level by making sure biological separations, distinctions are kept in place. Now, obviously, we have a Supreme Court who has interpreted the word sex to mean gender identity. I'm thrilled the Department of Justice has indicated they are willing to defend the constitutionality of this state law, and yet, by the same token, should this make it to the Supreme Court, I'm not necessarily hopeful that we would reach the new outcome. I think Title IX, unfortunately, is one of the next pillars to fall. What's your take? Yeah, so it may be based on Bostick, but, but remember, the statement of interest relied on equal protection in, in the intervening in the Idaho, in the Idaho case. So we have a constitutional provision protecting those, those uh, girls at the state level. Great to see the administration defending this issue, and voters need to pay attention, know the administration's doing the work on this issue. Coming up, Juneteenth is dominating social media and national news reports today. But what is Juneteenth and why should you be concerned with it? Well, we'll talk about a Christian approach to the holiday and the issues of race with President of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, Adam Greenway, right after this on Washington Watch. As coronavirus restrictions begin to ease, many Americans are grappling with how to adapt to the changing times. The last few months have transformed how worshipers think about church and how they are fed spiritually. While many churches are conducting services through live streams, drive-in services, and other means, questions still remain. What practical steps can we take? Are current restrictions appropriate? Do these restrictions violate the Constitution or religious freedom protections? Family Research Council has a new publication discussing religious liberty issues and offering practical guidelines for how churches and houses of worship can begin to operate as our country opens back up. Visit frc.org slash church guidelines to view this resource and learn more. As always, visit frc.org slash church for our full list of resources for churches in the time of coronavirus. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. 
Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Stay informed. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry sitting in for Tony Perkins on this, the 19th of June, 2020. And speaking of the 19th of June, June 19th, 1865, marks the date on which a quarter of a million African-Americans in Texas learned for the first time that all slaves in the nation were finally free and that the Union Army would enforce and defend their freedom nearly three years after President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Juneteenth is a day to remember the blight of slavery in our history, but also an opportunity to recognize our nation's ability to triumph over darkness. And in a campus-wide letter today, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary President Adam Greenway repudiated racism and called on the community to model what it looks like for followers of Christ to live and learn alongside each other in a spirit of unity. Adam Greenway joins me now. Adam, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you. It's so good to be with you this afternoon. I loved this letter. I loved the compassion and the warmth of this letter. I felt this letter was so needed. But what prompted you? Was there a specific particular event? Because these have been some chaotic days for America. At what point did you say, we have to respond to this, and this is what we're going to say? You're right in terms of the times we find ourselves in being very chaotic and confusing with almost a shrill cacophony of voices trying to uh, speak uh, into these matters. And as a biblical theologian, as a seminary president, and as somebody who deeply cares about uh, these issues, uh, I believed that it was incumbent upon uh, me to uh, try to bring some degree of clarity, uh, hopefully mixed with uh, compassion, but also biblical uh, faithfulness, and to speak a word, particularly here in our context, uh, as you No, there's a particular uh, significance to Juneteenth here in Texas uh, because of how the events transpired. And, in fact, Mm -hmm. actually 40 years ago this year, Texas was the first state to uh, declare Juneteenth a statewide holiday. So there's some unique things in our context that I thought made it um, the right moment to try to offer a word of biblical exhortation and encouragement on these issues. You know, I love the fact also that you referenced that this is not just a societal evil. It's very easy for people to recognize based on essentially the way the human spirit operates that this is an evil, that people should be treated equally, that they should not be persecuted because of their skin color. But the Bible's very clear on the fact that this is also a specific sin. Talk a little bit about that. You're exactly right. In fact, if anything... Uh, racism, uh, any idea of racial superiority or inferiority is a direct affront upon the historicity of Genesis and the fact that God, mm-hmm. his only kindness, created uh, man and woman in his image. Uh, and even as we, many of us learned at, a, at an early age, uh, red, yellow, black, and white, they are all precious in God's yes. sight. Any theology or any teaching that attempts to dehumanize or to depersonalize people based upon uh, skin color and ethnicity uh, is not uh, a biblical theology. And I realize at times there have been those who have tried to justify such things, the uh, reprehensible curse of ham theory that was popular with some uh, centuries ago. But a, a faithful reading of Scripture is very quick to affirm 
that um, a sign of God's goodness and God's beauty is the diversity of uh, ethnicity and mm-hmm. uh, racial backgrounds. These are not things we should see as um, negatives, but as a sign of God's goodness and favor of uh, his gift to creation. I love that you say black lives don't just matter. That's, that is just the beginning point, but they more than matter. Every individual life has value and worth to the creator, and really that the church should be out front leading conversations on this. So how do we do better building unity within the church and without? How do we exemplify the type of Christ-like love that has been given so freely to all of us, regardless of our skin color? Well, I think you hit on something that is very important. That is, we have to learn to really see people as God sees people. People are of infinite worth. They are of divine dignity because we all bear the image of God. And in light of that fact, we are all people for whom Christ died, that he came to bring the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to Mm. all of us. It is available for all without distinction, without exception. And I think as we particularly work to, to listen, uh, to listen to people who may not always look like us, who may not have walked the same paths that we've walked, but who have stories that we need to hear, and we can help them connect their story and our story ultimately to God's story, to the gospel story, to the story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. I think a lot of us need to be in a greater position to listen to voices and to listen to the Spirit, to listen to Scripture before we're able to speak, hopefully, words of truth and healing and comfort. What a great word. I have too often regretted speaking too quickly, but have not regretted biting my tongue and waiting to listen to what was being communicated at the time. And I think our recognition of the fact that there is a very old, very troubled, very heartbreaking history for the African-Americans here in our country that we as the church writ large need to be out in front on and saying, boy, if there is any place where we can strive for unity, it is representing this precious, irreplaceable love that we have so freely been given and that God is no respecter of persons, but loves us uniquely and individually. And it gives me hope that in these very difficult, challenging times, we yet have an opportunity not just to say the right things, but to do the right things, to embody that love in the culture. Has the reception to this letter on campus been good for you? It has been very positive, very encouraging from our diverse uh, student body. I've been very thankful for the way that they have um, responded to this word. And hopefully this uh, continues a conversation that we need to have to take tangible steps moving forward in reconciliation and in unity. Mm, Amen. Adam Greenway, president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, has been my guest. Coming up, we'll be talking next about the growing threat the radical left poses to church and how Christians can engage in the public arena with founder and president of Faith Wins, Chad Connolly, right after this on Washington Watch.
Welcome back to Washington Watch. It's June 19th, 2020, Father's Day weekend. Remember to download the Stand Firm app. Make sure it is the most updated version available in your Apple app or Google Play Store. Well, among the many lessons that coronavirus has taught us is that Democrats don't necessarily believe churches are essential or that religious liberty is critical to the operation of a free and pluralistic society. All the more reason for us to be involved in the public arena. But where and how do we start? Joining me now to talk about it is Chad Connolly, founder and president of Faith Wins. Chad, welcome to Washington Watch. Chad, welcome. I am glad to be here. All right, tell me about Faith Wins. What is your organization designed to do? What's its mission? Well, million percent, we're going to have the most robust, most accurately measured voter registration effort in evangelical church history in modern American politics. I, you know, I was chairman of the South Carolina Republican Party, then I worked for Reince Priebus as the first ever national director of faith engagement from 13 to 17, helped the president get elected, went to 43 states and spoke to about 85,000 pastors. And I just believe if there's a secret sauce, it's getting Christians involved in the arena, Sarah. Yes, yes. In fact, I'll let all of our listeners in on a little secret. Chad and I have served together on evaluation panels for something called I Voter Guide. And we're going to give this resource an encouraging push here. I, small letter I, VoterGuide.com. It is a coalition effort to evaluate just about every race, local, state, national, executive branch, every level of every candidate running. It's been my privilege to work with Chad on this initiative. We highly recommend the resource. I got to tell you, voter registration is where it's at. What do you say, Chad, to somebody who says, well, you know, as a Christian, I really try to be outside of the culture. I don't feel like it's my calling to get involved in the political process. What would you say to someone like that? Amen, Sarah. And I hear it a lot. In fact, I did a training set of training videos on our faithwins.us site because you do hear it a lot. They've been misled, right? I believe yes. Matthew 5 is pretty clear. If we're going to be salt and light, there are no commas in there saying, ooh, except for politics, except for government. No, we have a Christian obligation and responsibility to engage the culture. That Amen. means even in we may find distasteful. That's why it's a problem. There are not enough Christians involved. Yes, absolutely. And then you end up with candidates who don't represent your perspectives or your beliefs and want to minimize everything that you hold dear. And increasingly, Chad, you and I both know that these are constitutional freedoms that we thought were secured no matter what happened after the ratification of the Constitution. And yet we find them in the firing line more and more. So talk a little bit about the stakes this year. What's at stake as you evaluate these races, as you work with these churches to get voter registrations going? Do you have an increased passion and intensity this year? Because for my part, I feel the stakes have never been higher. Amen. And you're so right, because I'm not sure the lines have ever been drawn more brightly either. The attacks on religious liberty that we've seen for quite some time, the attacks on life and marriage, Israel, things like that, seem to pale in comparison now to the attacks on the very foundations that have made America special. It's like there's this 
America, and as you and I know, it's really a spiritual attack against God because we know just a little bit of honest reading of the truths of the foundation show this was a Christian nation that's founded, not that you had to be a Christian. So I believe that the, the lines are drawn brightly. There's an awful lot at stake. It's not just judges and conservative judges and religious liberty, life, marriage, and Israel. It's the very idea of the experiment that made America. And can yes. we survive as a republic where people have a responsibility to find out what's going on and to involve themselves? Well, what we're seeing right now out there is it's, it's way beyond what anybody ever imagined. So, uh, yes, there's a passion, Sarah. We've done 75 Zoom calls with a little over 11,000 pastors from all mm. 50 states. Um, when I was out traveling around the country, we've, of course, kind of curtailed the traveling for now. We're going to pick that up in a couple of weeks, and we'll yeah. be in every one of the battleground states. We have bivocational pastors on the ground there now, and we see a real animation on our side of people who are just not sure what to do, but they want to maximize the turnout of Christians at every level, city, state, and federal, because they believe that we've lost a lot of those freedoms due to our apathy and our inactivity. Yes. Let me tell you, we've got to get pastors activated so that their congregations get activated. FRC's got a a research publication, frc.org slash engage. We've talked to David Clausen about his biblical principles for political engagement. And this year, more than ever, I do believe people will not only be hungry to go back to church because we've been denied the opportunity to worship in person with our brothers and sisters, but we have captive audiences to the message of the gospel and why we need to be politically active. Talk a little bit about some of the work you do with churches. Yeah, well, you're so right. And not just, you know, we have the greatest news in the world, the news about Jesus dying for our sins. And as Americans, we have the next greatest news in the entire world. We live in the freest, greatest country in the world. And so Mm -hmm. when we go out and do these meetings, we go from small meetings to large meetings and get pastors to plug in our network, to host their own meetings, and to commit to doing voter registration this fall. Well, coming up, it is the start of Father's Day weekend. Rainy for some, but important nonetheless. I'll talk about FRC's new publication, Leadership and Love, A Tale of Two Fathers, with the author and clinical psychologist Jesse Gill, right after this on Washington Watch. Stick around. As coronavirus restrictions begin to ease, many Americans are grappling with how to adapt to the changing times. The last few months have transformed how worshipers think about church and how they are fed spiritually. While many churches are conducting services through live streams, drive-in services, and other means, questions still remain. What practical steps can we take? Are current restrictions appropriate? Do these restrictions violate the Constitution or religious freedom protections? Family Research Council has a new publication discussing religious liberty issues and offering practical guidelines for how churches and houses of worship can begin to operate as our country opens back up. Visit frc.org slash church guidelines to view this resource and learn more. As always, 
Visit frc.org slash church for our full list of resources for churches in the time of coronavirus. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch, and happy early Father's Day. Father's Day is what we're going to be talking about now, and the importance of strong fathers. Why is it important to have a strong male presence in the home? What can we learn about strong biblical men who strive for godliness and service to those around them? Is masculinity in the home a toxic presence, or do we need it more now than ever? Joining me to talk about it is FRC's new publication author, the author of Leadership and Love, A Tale of Two Fathers, clinical psychologist and director of Psychological Health Associates in Hershey, Pennsylvania, Jesse Gill. Jesse, welcome to Washington Watch. Hi, Sarah. It's so good to be with you this evening. Jesse, I got to tell you, first of all, a little note of sort of personal encouragement and delight. My youngest is named Jesse, and one of the reasons we picked the name is because he is, as you know, the father of the most famous king of Israel, King David. He is referenced in the line of Jesus, in the genealogy of Jesus, and so his very presence as the father of a man of character was part of the reason that we picked the name. So I'm delighted to find another Jesse with a biblical spelling that I get to talk to. So as you wrote this publication, did you mm-hmm. automatically know the two fathers that you would be examining when this notion of fatherhood came up? I, I really thought long and hard about this, Sarah, and I chose particularly, uh, I wouldn't call them polar opposites. I would say that they complemented each other because when we think about the two dads in this article, um, we're, we're, we're seeing Joshua as the father of strength and we're seeing the father of the prodigal son as the dad who just exemplified unconditional love. So I wanted to bring both of those attributes home to our readers and, and all of the, the men of faith who are seeking in these turbulent and unprecedented times for a, a roadmap of how they can lead and guide and raise their children and lead in their families. So for those who are listening, we encourage you to go to frc.org slash fathers. There 
is really such a great wealth of information about the characteristics, the temperaments, the skills needed for strong fatherhood and a strong male presence. And this is an excellent comparison of these two, but they are, like you said, very, very different. But it's frc.org slash fathers. Talk to me a little bit about Joshua. What stood out to you in examination of his character and the way he parented his children? I I really, I have for myself the theme verse of Joshua 24:15 it's literally up in the wall in my living room and the verse says as for me and my family we will serve the lord so it's a mm-hmm. personal theme verse for my life and we don't actually get any details sarah about Joshua's kids uh, but we can you know we can certainly extract from that verse that he had a family that he was leading them and so as i've been uh, personally on a journey of studying um, something called attachment theory, which is the bonding process that God gives us for parenting and for marriage, I came across uh, several beautiful verses in the Bible that talked about God's promises to us that we would never be alone, we would never mm-hmm. be forsaken. And Joshua's name kept coming up in those um, scripture passages. So as I dug into Joshua, and we, we know, you know, he was a man of valor. He uh, led the, the Hebrew people to conquer Jericho. I mean, he was a warrior, Sarah. This was a tough man. But when you think about it, his strength was not just because of, you know, physical stamina or, uh, you know, warrior mindset. His strength was rooted in his walk with God. And he, I came across this one passage that indicated that Joshua spent hours and hours in the tabernacle, uh, in the presence of God. So even after the others left, even after Moses, you know, left, Joshua stayed on in the presence of God. And mm-hmm. so I thought about okay, what did he experience and what did he learn and what um, anchored him, what was basically the foundation of his great valor. And I yes. believe it was this steadfast awareness of the abiding presence of God in his life. Now, contrast that, if you would, Jesse, with your study of the father of the prodigal son, who presents more, and I wouldn't necessarily say passive, but he makes a particular choice not to chase after his son, not to pull him out of the slums where he is eating with the pigs after having spent Mm -hmm. all of his inheritance. He makes Mm -hmm. a choice to wait. So talk about that difference with Joshua's strength of presence. Talk about how they're different. It's equally courageous, um, Sarah. You know, and we know that the the father of faith is Abraham. He choose he chose to lay his own son up on the altar, right? So there is a there's yes. a tremendous strength of faith to release our children into God's care. I, I make a note of this in the article, and I want to just say this: you know, that the father of the prodigal son, when he let his son run and go rampant. Um, his son was a young adult. Like, he didn't let his, his uh, middle school or teenage boy go into drunkenness and debauchery. Like, that yes. would not be loving. But his son was a young adult when uh, his son made this choice. And so the father had to have tremendous faith and tremendous courage to release his son to pursue these things. And, and then, of course, we also know that his 
approach to waiting for his son, longing for his son, was anything but passive. You know, we, we hear that he was literally looking down the road every day, waiting for his son to return, no doubt praying for his son, believing that God was going to, in effect, uh, change his son's heart and bring about repentance and restoration. You know, of the two types of courage, I have to tell you, that is the one that I am most impressed by, that ability to wait and wholly entrust your child who is running amok. And listen, I have two teenagers. I'm getting daily experience in this aspect. Being able to say, Lord, I trust your care for them and your care of them to the exclusion of even my own ability to love and care for them. And so the waiting of the father of the prodigal son and just entrusting that when the time was right, God would deliver him home, that impresses me because, and it may also be a notion of motherhood. We are the caretakers. I think we want Mm -hmm. to be the Mm -hmm. fixers and the head petters and the shoulders for weeping babies' faces, and that part of me goes, oh, run out and get him. You don't want him to be eating with the pigs. What a horrible experience, and yet the father knows knows there is a lesson to be learned here and these consequences need to be experienced to be fully immersed how are these both of these parents like god because god is such a wonderful storyteller his word is full of these characteristics of himself that demonstrate he is truly the ultimate father explain a little bit how he manifests that through his word and through his own characteristics. Sarah, it's it's evident throughout the whole of Scripture that God embodies, you know, sort of these two sides of love. And, and you know, I'm going to draw from the attachment theory because that's what I'm passionate about. And Scripture so beautifully plays out the, um, the facets of attachment theory. So you think of it as like two sides of the same coin, but the one side says, I'm here, I'm here for you, you know, no matter what, you can come to me, you can turn to me day and night, you know, Deuteronomy 31, 6, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And that's, uh, in attachment theory, that's called safe haven, that, that God is always calling us to come to him, and, and he will be there for us. And the, the father and the prodigal son certainly um, demonstrates that as well. The other side of this coin is that God does not force himself on any of us. God allows us to, you know, to choose him. He um, is always standing and ready and waiting, but God does not micromanage the steps of our lives. And so sometimes we we choose sinfulness, like the, the son and the prodigal son story, and sometimes we choose error, and we, we, we turn our backs on God. Um, and, it, and as you said, there, it takes a particular strength to trust that I can release my child and, and believe that and hopefully I've instilled character and faith and scripture into their lives that they will fall back upon. Scripture promises that us that, you know, raise a child in the way that he or she should go, and when he grows older, he will not, you know, depart from that. But there's, there's two sides of the same coin, that God, you know, draws us to himself, but God also says, you know, I'm, I'm launching you, and I'm letting you, you know, live out and act out your, your faith with fear and trembling. And, and, and that is, of course, the way that we are the 
emissaries and the ambassadors of God's love on the planet because we launch out from our resting place. We launch out from our safe haven to be his hands and feet on the earth. So no, I love that. We, we don't, you know, yeah, yeah, we don't want to micromanage our kids. We want to in, you know, impart to them. We want to do that through not only the spoken word, uh, but as I talk about in this article, we want our lives to be an experiential representation of God's love. Both of those attributes that were there for our children to turn to with our unconditional love and that we increasingly are going to believe in them. We're going to be proud of them and we're going to you know, nudge them forward to, to do all that God has called them to do. I love the fact that you talk about presenting a secure base to these kids because, again, it, it goes against everything I think it's in our human nature to want to do, which is to micromanage. And I, I'm always sort of jokingly ribbing the millennials. And there are conservative millennials out there, but I think helicopter parenting and trophy mm-hmm. for everything have wrought a generation of individuals too willing to vandalize and destroy and too quickly to be injured. And I think it's really the father who establishes the security of who our children are, who gives them that safe, strong foundation, and then entrusts them to go out and make these correct decisions. You know, I have a very different parenting style than my husband. I think he would probably qualify more as a free-range parent. We grew up in the early 70s, and it was Mm -hmm. sort of part and parcel of that era to go out. You know, you kick us out the front door on summer days and come back when the sun starts to set, and you better do the dishes after dinner. So I'm seeing a lot of different manifestations in today's youth. And I, I am inclined to believe that the presence of strong fathers could really remedy a lot of the cultural fallout that we're seeing. I absolutely believe that, Sarah. You know, there is, there's been an attack on fatherhood, um, you know, at, at multiple different levels. And, of course, we know that much of that uh, really is a defiance against God the Father himself. But into that uh, vacuum space that's been created in our society, we need Christian men to step in. And, um, and I encourage dads, you know, it's never too late to start that. And, and you don't have to meet some kind of stereotype about what it means to be, um, you know, like a man's man, to be an effective father and to be uh, raising your, your sons and your daughters to be children who have strength and courage. Um, I think about my own dad. He's gone home to be with the Lord now. Um, but, you know, we, we didn't play sports together. Um, we didn't hunt together. That's just not some of what we did. Um, but I worked in the family business. We worked hard together. And we had times where we talked about our Christian faith. We had intellectual discussions. Um, you know, so we worked side by side. We had playtime. And my dad absolutely told me every single day, that he loved me. And so mm-hmm. I, I had that confidence, that secure base to launch out, to, to love, to speak out, to stand for justice. Um, so I want to encourage dads, like it's, it's not about any kind of specific stereotype, but it's whatever the gifts that God has given you, um, that's what you are bringing as strength to your relationship with your kids. And, um, you know, it's as unique as who you are 
and you can bond with them around uh, sports. You can bond with them around, you know, working in the yard or gardening or a family business. But the mm-hmm. most important thing is to take that time, take time to listen to them, take time to share with them of yourself and to take time to pray with them and lead them to Jesus. Boy, isn't that the most important thing? That salvation foundation, everything on top of that just continues to build the foundation of that house. And time spent, boy, that is something with which we went into the world having really had an opportunity to spend one-on-one time with our parents and specifically my desire to be like my dad who was a lawyer Mm -hmm. and who was a writer and who drove so many of my professional aspirations so you see the example just by living your life by setting a good example you know there is no moment of observation that is lost I have learned this in my own parenting journey they see everything Uh, even the stuff you rather they not see. So I'm encouraged to talk to you and to hear about really the importance of fathers. It encourages me as the wife of someone who who really stresses the need to be a good father to our kids and the importance of God the Father overall who loves us with an everlasting love, who is the ultimate father. Guys, the publication, frc.org slash fathers. Go and download it today. You won't be disappointed. Jesse Gill has been my guest. We'll see you next time on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. 